Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This is Daniel Markin. And on today's program, I have the pleasure of chatting with Ray Comfort. He's with a ministry called Living Waters, gifted evangelist. But more than that, he has a real heart for God and a real heart to see people come to faith in Jesus, trusting faith. So we have a good discussion about that and including his upcoming book. So I hope you find it helpful. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Daniel Markin. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Ray Comfort. You might know that name, but I'll let him introduce himself. Ray, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thanks, Daniel. Now, a lot of people will recognize your voice, whether they've seen it through YouTube or they've seen it, maybe like heard one of your radio programs, but not a lot of people might even really know what you do. And so I want to know if you'd let our audience know a little bit about who you are. Tell us about your, your life, personal life, and then even your ministry life as well. Yeah, um, I'm originally from New Zealand. That's what the accent is. I was born there twice, came to the U.S. about 33 years ago, specifically to bring a teaching to the Church of America. It was called Hell's Best Kept Secret. Things were very quiet for about three years, and then I began receiving calls from church leaders, and I began to expand when um, a well-known Christian minister screened the video of me teaching to 30,000 pastors, and that sure opened doors. And then Some years later, Kirk Cameron, the actor, heard the teaching and wanted to combine ministries. So we combined ministries, started a television program, which is now in its eighth season. Um, It goes to 130, 190 countries. Sorry. We've got a YouTube channel with 195 million views. I write books and uh, that's about it. So you got a, a lot that's keeping you busy. Yeah, a lot of speaking, a <laughs> lot, of, lot of writing and stuff like that. And one of the things I always like to ask writers is, what's your writing process? Because you've written a lot of books. I know some people, for example, I've interviewed Daryl Bach. He's a theologian at uh, Dallas Seminary. And he literally just writes a page a day. He just says, I sit down, write a page, and then I walk away. And it's like he just, that's how his mind operates. I also know people who go away to a cabin for a bunch of months and then they, they'll write and write and write and then they'll come back after like, you know, like a retreat. They're like, I got it. I got the book. What's your process? Yeah, I just get a passion for something and then I begin writing. And I've got a very understanding wife. I write in the night. I really despise sleep. I think sleep is a part of the curse. By that, I mean, when I go to sleep, I go to a dreamland where I receive like full color movies that I didn't order. Some are horrors, some are sexually explicit, some are real boring, but I don't program my dreams. And it really annoys me. It's the land of insanity we go in for about eight hours each night. Often you wake up feeling worse than you went to sleep. So I get as little asleep as I can. And I wake up in the night and I write. It's very quiet and clear. I got an iPad just right in my bed. And that's, that's normally the process. And then I write maybe a chapter or a few, a whole thought, a few pages, and I read it in the morning thinking at night it's wonderful in the morning i think this is terrible so i refine it and refine it and refine it until i've got what i want and that seems to work i like that and the hardest part of any writing 
is that refining piece because it becomes this like you know it's this little child this little baby that you've you've nurtured and 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 it reflects you and then all of a sudden someone tells you oh you need to edit that down or you need to get rid of that and it's like <laughs> it could be deeply personal you just want to chop just chop the arm off is that what you're saying chop the arm off my yeah. baby yeah sure yeah <laughs> so you've you've got a new book here and, and you're you're basically asking the question which is a question that I think a lot of people ask today, which is, why would anyone follow Jesus? Let's just chat about that a little bit, because I think we could talk about the book specifically, but then even more broadly, begin to talk about that question. Why would anyone follow Jesus? We're living in a very secular time, very secular world. You live in Southern California, where that's very secular. I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is one of the most secular. I mean, anything on the West Coast the idea of giving your life to a God, any other God than yourself, is an idea pretty foreign to a lot of people. And so, love to begin to talk to you about this. You know, why would, right? Why would anyone follow Jesus? Well, he is the only one that can grant everlasting life. And we've got something wonderful that's happened in the last two years. It's been a plague upon the earth, but it's prepared a lot of people's hearts for the gospel in the sense that. Human beings are not beasts. Evolution is a farce. We're not primates. We're not like dogs, cats, cows, kittens, horses, whatever. We're human beings made in the image of God. So God has placed eternity upon our heart. So I know every person I speak to, whether they're atheist, whether they're secular, agnostic, whatever, no desire for God, I know I've got something that's on my side. And that is God has placed eternity upon his or her heart. Something that person says, oh, I don't want to die. And this last two years has shown people they're going to die. Death is all around us. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's what this life is. And so that's a very, very powerful tool to tap into. You think of how a waitress approaches men at a table. She looks up. There's three men in three-piece suits, important-looking cases. They're wheeling and dealing millions of dollars. Is she intimidated? No. She walks right up and says, can I take your order? Boldly. Why does she say that? It's because she knows she has something they want. They're there to eat. And so they don't mind her interrupting and she doesn't mind interrupting. That's why she's bold. And you and I as Christians have something this world wants more than anything else. They want to live. No one would sell an eye for a million dollars or sell both for 10 million. How much more is your life worth? And so that's what we've got to tap into. So when I interview people like yesterday i had a wonderful time in a local college just went up and i start off by saying are you afraid of death that's how the interview begins and the person i know what's going on in their mind they're thinking how does he know i haven't told mom dad my brother my sister my friends but i am terrified by death and i know he is because of the fact hebrews 2 verse 14 and 15 says every human being on the face of this earth is haunted by the fear of death all their lifetime. That's the wording scripture uses. So I tap into that. I say, you're afraid of dying? And I say, yeah, somewhat. I say, somewhat? They say, yeah, I am. I think about it all the time. I said, it's like an appointment you've got to keep. It gets closer and closer and closer. Do you know why the Bible says you're going to die? And they say, no, never read it. It says that death is wages. God is paying you in death for your sins like a judge looks at a heinous criminal that's murdered three girls after he raped them the judge says you've earned the death sentence this is your payment this is what we're going to give you this is what's due to you this is what you've earned and sin is so serious to a holy god he's given us the death sentence and then i say something like this and this gets eyes opened 
I say, do you know what the Bible actually, a synopsis of the Bible is? Old Testament, God promised to destroy death, and the New Testament tells us how he did it. That gets people saying, well, I'm interested now. It stirs curiosity because you've appealed to their, their love of life and curiosity, which is very powerful. And then I share the gospel with them, and it's very, very effective. You can see it on a YouTube channel. As I said, just past 195 million views, you see atheists backslide, people who have no interest in God suddenly have an interest because of this inner light that God has given to every man, this inner eternity placed upon their heart. And so when I mention what Jesus did on the cross, that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, they're going to listen up if they know what's good for them. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about just even what you're discussing there with evangelism, because it's one of the things that many people know your ministry best for. And I think you're incredibly gifted at it. I mean, the, the Lord has clearly using you. He's clearly used, he has used, he is using, he will use you to continue to do that. And you have an ethos and a pathos about you where you, even like as you're describing that conversation to me, I feel like if I went up to someone and said, are you afraid of death? It just wouldn't have the same impact. And, you know, just to affirm you, brother. Change your accent. Uh, yeah, exactly. I need to, I just need to move to a different country maybe, right? But uh, in evangelism, there's an art to it and there's a heart to it. And I think that you, you do both very, very well. And I think that a lot of people, if they want to evangelize, need to make sure they have both. Because so often I see people who will try and, and, and enter in and begin to ask, you know, they, they feel a, you know, a heart for evangelism or even maybe intellectually, they're like, yeah, I need to do this. So they go and they try and do it. But the way they go about it just comes across as domineering. It comes across as arrogant and it comes across as transactional. And so I just want to know, like, how do you balance or train people, even like as you're talking about evangelism, to have that heart, like that caring pastoral heart? Because I think it's missing so often. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, tone is very important, and tone should be dictated by your own heart, your love for the person, a genuine concern and love for the person you're speaking to. See, I can say good morning to someone like this. I can say good morning as they walk past me, or I can say good morning. One is like, yeah, good morning, and the other is, boy, I hope you're well. Just the tone is very, very important. The other thing, you said I was gifted. Um, let me just see if I can qualify that, and it's good news if I can. If you saw a marathon runner win a marathon, he just hits the tape and you go up to him and say, wow, you are so gifted. He's going to turn to you and say, what are you talking about? Gifted? I've trained for this. Every week I run 30 miles. I haven't eaten chocolate cake. I haven't eaten milkshakes or any of these things for months or even years because I'm denying myself to get this, this physique. This is what I do. I've trained myself. Look at my legs. This is muscle. This has come by hard work. And so you look at me break the tape and say, wow, he's really gifted, but really it's come from hard work. I put my foot in my mouth so many times and I've practiced what I preach. You know, I witness to people when I'm in the shower, I go over it in my head when I'm, you know, shaving, whatever I'm doing, I'm thinking about these things. So it comes more naturally, but, you know, I've really had to train hard for it. Now that's good news to know that anyone can do it. If you just watch your tone and then practice what you preach, go, what would you say to an atheist? Just say, man, how would I talk to an atheist? Well, I can tell you what to say to an atheist that'll make him backslide. It'll give you confidence. If you ever meet an atheist, don't say to yourself, Boy, this is an atheist. He's intelligent. The Bible says the exact opposite. We're not intelligent if we think an atheist is intelligent. 
Bible says an atheist is a fool. It even says he's a fool who says that he's wise in the book of Romans. And so if you've got someone who's an atheist, just ask this one question. This works again and again. Just say, so you're an atheist? They say, yeah. So you really believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything, which is what an atheist mm -hmm. defaults to. He believes nothing created everything. And you'll see most of them, they'll go like their mouth will go like a little road tunnel. They'll go, oh, so I don't believe nothing created everything. There was something in the beginning. It just wasn't God. I said, well, let's see if we can figure out why you don't want it to be God. And you find that he's living with his gorgeous girlfriend, having sex with her and looking at pornography, feasting on it. And it's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. It's been so well said that someone can't find God, an atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. He doesn't want to. And so it's so true that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So it's very important if you want to witness to anyone that you imitate what Jesus did. Let me also qualify and button if I'm going on too much, but let me just share something that's very important in this whole issue about me being gifted. I'm actually just simply using a principle that is so put forth in scripture, and this is that principle, parable of the sower. There are four different hearers, the wayside hearer, the thorny ground hearer, the stony ground hearer, and the good soil hearer. Now I've heard modern preachers who preach an erroneous gospel that Jesus will solve your problems and never open up the commandments say something like this. Look, if you are only getting one in four that make commitments to Christ stick, that's okay, because the parable of the sower, there was only one in four that worked, only a 25% success rate. But I don't think the parable of the sower was given by Jesus as a uh, consolation for disappointing evangelistic results. I think there are keys. So you look at the genuine convert, the good soil hearer, who receives the word and understands it, and he brings forth fruit a hundredfold. So he has the virtue of understanding. Oh, so there are people out in the world who will naturally understand what we're saying. We just have to find who they are. No, that's not biblical. Romans chapter three says that there is none who understand. Nobody understands. So that understanding that's necessary for someone to come to Christ doesn't come from within the human heart. It comes from without. So what is it that produces understanding? Well, Galatians 3.24 tells us the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. A schoolmaster teaches. A schoolmaster brings about understanding. And so if you look at what Jesus did with a rich young ruler, he said, why do you call me good? Because he asked how he could get everlasting life. He says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And then he gave him five of the Ten Commandments. Why did you do that? To bring an understanding of what good means in God's eyes. And so when I meet a sinner, I say, do you think you're a good person? They say, yeah, I am. I say, well, let's see if you've kept the Ten Commandments. Let's see if you're as good as you think you are in God's book. And he finds out he's, he's lied, he's stolen, he's blasphemed God's name. And Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in the heart. And that produces an understanding to a point where he wants to know how he, he can be saved from the damnation of hell. And that's where the cross comes in. So it's not just me being gifted. It's me using something God has given us that you can also use with a little bit of skill. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you this then, you know, maybe you're meeting with an atheist or you meet with that guy in particular. And he says, you, you bring up the Ten Commandments. Well, let's say he says, why would I believe the Ten Commandments? Those are archaic old laws. What would you say to that guy? Yeah, if you took a sword 
a very sharp sword, a two-edged sword, and put it by my throat. You just touch my throat from a distance with that sword. It was so sharp that it caused blood to bubble from my skin. That sharp. And you said, I am going to cut into you with a sword. And I says, ha, ha, I don't believe in swords. It's not going to change reality. It's going to do its cutting, whether I believe or not, whether it's an old sword or a new sword, it's going to do its work. And the Bible says the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So just because someone doesn't believe what the Bible says, it doesn't take away from its power. It's still a weapon that God has given us that's mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said something like this. He said, you don't have to defend the Bible. That's like walking in front of a lion with a sword. It doesn't need defending. And it's powerful, so powerful, it goes right into the marrow of the bones. So I wouldn't worry when someone says, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in the Ten Commandments. Besides, there's a saying that most people know, and that's this. Uh, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Have you ever heard that, Daniel? Yeah. Well, it's something that uh, if I'm ignorant to the law, I can still end up in jail, right, for, for committing a crime. Yeah, that's it. You can drive through a town at 80 miles an hour and say, Judge, I didn't know it was 30 miles an hour. He's saying you're going to jail because he knows that you know what you did was wrong. You just don't know the extent. And so ignorance of God's law is no excuse. You're still bound by it. Conscience still accuses. And that's the other confidence I have. One, you've got the confidence this person has eternity on his heart. He wants to live. And the other confidence is that God has given him a conscience, the work of the law written upon their heart. The conscience is like an impartial judge on the courtroom of the mind so that when a guy fornicates, looks at pornography, blasphemes, lies or steals, even runs in rebellion to God, he intuitively knows what he's doing is morally wrong because of the light of conscience. And that's what will condemn him on judgment days without excuse because God wrote his law upon his heart. So when you go through the commandments as Jesus did and say, you know, it's wrong to lie, don't you? His conscience affirms the truth of the commandment. It says, yeah, that's right. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to steal, wrong to commit adultery. And so you can tap into that ally that's right in the heart of the enemy. That ally of conscience will side with you when you go through those commandments and show what sin is. Let me ask you this. As you think about the common person today, I mean, you're meeting people all over the place. What's the most common reason that they don't believe in Jesus? Because in, in North America, there's a good chance, you know, you've, you've somewhat heard of him. You've probably heard him mentioned on like the Simpsons, right? Like Jesus is somewhat in the cultural fabric. People might not have a Christian memory where like their grandparents went to church, their parents went to church, so they, they know the stories. But they still know more or less that there's Jesus. They'll see statues maybe on a, the front of a church or something like that. Why do you think the top reason people question, what, what is that top reason? that you're finding today, why they do not believe or are just questioning him? Because he's totally irrelevant to them. He's an historical figure. Uh, someone says, I don't believe there's any evidence Jesus existed. I just asked, what year is it? They say, oh, 2022. I said, since who? Since Christ. So there's more evidence that Jesus existed historically than any other thing. But the thing is, if you're on a plane and you're uh, enjoying the flight, watching the movie, eating good food, you're not going to be interested in a parachute. What do you want a parachute for? Get that parachute out of my face. But if the plane's going down, it's going to crash, and you have to jump 10,000 feet, and I offer you a parachute, you're going to say, give me that parachute. Forget the movie. Forget the food. That parachute becomes 
primary in your desire. You want that parachute more than anything else because your life depends on it. So what we have to do is show people that God has given a parachute to save us from death. And there's no other name under heaven given among men why, why we must be saved. You know, it's been said you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. That's not true. You can salt his oats. All you do is put salt in the oats and the horse will be saying, well, give me a drink of water. And the Bible says no one seeks after God. Romans chapter three, none seek after God. But you can cause him to seek after God by salting his oats. Just ask a question of any secular person. Why is it there are billions of people seeking after God? Why do you think? They say, I don't know. I didn't really thought about it. Well, it's because they know that God is eternal and we're not. He is the source of life and we're in death. We're finite. We're going to die. Death is coming for us. It's like a, an 18-wheeler and we're stuck on a freeway and it's heading for us. And the only way human beings are going to be free from the power of death and the grave is to somehow find God. And we're separated from God by our sins. So let me show you how you can find God because God made a way for you to have everlasting life. And so the main reason, as I said, people don't seek after Jesus is these are relevant, just like a parachute's irrelevant when you're enjoying the flight. You've got to bring the issues to them and, uh, and show them that death is coming and he's their only hope. Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, I've got one hesitation in sharing all these truths, Daniel, and I'll try and explain it. Years ago, well, there was a time when teaching someone to drive was an absolute pain. It's uh, this the stick shift. Do you know what a stick shift is? I know what a stick shift is. Yeah, it was a nightmare teaching someone to drive because you had to yeah, yeah. push the clutch in and then release it and push down the accelerator. If you didn't get that timing right, you'd get what we call kangaroo gas. <laughs> the car would bounce over. <laughs> it was embarrassing and it was make a groan. <sighs> Uh, the gears that make a terrible noise. Now it's a breeze to drive a car. In fact, an eight-year-old drove a car to McDonald's recently, somewhere in the States. He got hungry and he took his sister while his parents were asleep, got money out of his piggy bank and drove a mile to McDonald's and he made no mistakes. Witnesses couldn't believe us, an eight-year-old driving because it's such a breeze to drive a car. And so my concern is that if I say to someone, hey, uh, Driving's a breeze, but I want to tell you a few things you've got to be careful of. Number one, don't text and drive. Number two, just don't uh, drink and drive. Be careful that you don't travel too close to cars in front of you, uh, because if they stop, you're going to bang into them, hurt their neck, and you've got a lawsuit, could lose your own home. You could kill someone with your car. It's a vehicle that's dangerous. You run over cyclists. People could step out. You can run over cats and dogs. And by telling you all these things, you say, man, I'm never going to drive a car. It's so scary. But we know from experience, you can enjoy driving, the convenience of driving, and all these things come naturally, intuitively, uh, if you just apply yourself to it. And it's exactly the same with evangelism. What I'm saying sounds complex. Address the conscience. Do this. Do that. But if you begin to apply your heart to evangelism, these things will come naturally. They'll come automatically like an automatic car. You know, you'll learn to address the conscience. You'll learn to say what to an atheist. And it'll take you all over the place without any deep concern. So don't be put off by what sounds complicated when it comes to evangelism. It's real simple if you just apply your heart to it and have a love for the lost. Yeah. Let me ask you this one. We're living in a, a really difficult days. I mean, everyone, like, we've got COVID. We have the world unrest, right? It's a, it's a hard time. Everyone has different things going on. Why 
should we trust in Jesus? How, how can we trust in Jesus even when it's hard? Well, that's a really good question. I think a lot of people get mixed up between belief and faith. They intellectually can believe in God's existence, and it's easy to. I mean, everything made had a maker. Every, every painting had a painter. The painting is evidence of the painter. The building is evidence of the builder. And creation is evidence of the creator. So we all know because of creation that God exists. Um, design is the pallbearer of atheism. It lowers it into the grave. You see design through the atom right to the universe. Everything has incredible design and order to it. So we intuitively, intellectually know God exists. The heavens declare his glory. It's his painting. Every time you see a sunrise or a sunset, you know God exists. But when we talk about faith in God, we're not talking about an intellectual belief in his existence. We're talking about a trust in his promises. And there's a huge difference. Now, we trust, we're, as opposed to intellectually believing, we trust in taxi drivers to drive us. We trust in doctors. They give us pills. We say, doc, we take these two pills. And okay, we trust our lives to doctors. We trust surgeons. We trust elevators. Some even trust politicians. We trust man everywhere. But the Bible says the way to please God is to trust him. And if there's one way you won't please God, it is not to exercise that implicit trust in his promises. Just yesterday, a young lady says she had trouble in uh, you know, believing God's promises. She says faith was difficult for her. I says, where do you live? She told me. And then I says, what are you doing for a job? And she told me. And I said, I don't believe that. You should have seen her. Her eyes fluttered. And I says, that's an insult to you, isn't it, if I don't believe what you've told me? It means I think you're a lie, you're devious, you're not worth trusting. And I said, if you, a bare person, are insulted by my lack of faith in your word, how much more do you insult a holy God by having a lack of faith in his word? The Bible says, he that believes not God has made him a liar. Let none of you depart from a living God through an evil heart of unbelief. You can't have any human relationship without faith. Say to your girlfriend, don't trust you, honey. It's all over. Say to your wife, don't trust your sweetheart. You're sleeping on the couch. Say it to your boss, you're going to be without a job soon. Trust holds everything together. So we must, as Christians, make sure we trust the promises of God. When we're in a lion's den, we don't shake our fist at God. We, we bow the knee. When we're at the Red Sea and there's nowhere to go, we trust in God's promises. Because he's given us that safety net scripture, all things work together for good to those that love God and according to his purposes. So when things go wrong, we don't get angry. We trust the Lord. We keep our peace and joy because we know he is faithful. And so there is that difference between an intellectual belief in God and trusting in his promises. And the Bible says he that comes to God must first believe that he exists. That's the intellectual belief. And that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That is believing that he keeps his word. And it's important to see that difference. Amen. Hey, for your upcoming book or even some of your past books, where can our audience find them? Yeah, livingwaters.com is where you can see what we've got. We've got an evidence Bible, lots of different books and a lot of free stuff. And there's the YouTube channel, just either Living Waters YouTube or Ray Comfort YouTube, and uh, that's all free. Amazing. Well, bless you, brother. Thank you for your time. And we look forward to our paths crossing again. Okay. If you're ever in Southern California, come and visit. I will. Bye-bye. for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
In Doubt is a ministry that exists to engage young people with biblical truth and provide answers for many of today's questions of life, faith, and culture. Through audio programs, articles, and blogs, In Doubt reaches out to encourage, strengthen, and disciple young adults. To check out all the resources of In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Or if you're in a position or share a passion for the ministry of young people, you can support the ongoing mission of engaging a new generation with the truth of the Bible. First, you can pray for this ministry. And second, and if you are able, please consider a financial gift by visiting indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Your gift of any amount is such a blessing and an answer to prayer. Thanks.